All right, I'll turn your attention now back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 this morning. This is the journey that we're going to go through seeing the heroes of the faith. Um, This has been called the faith chapter, the hall of faith, the honor roll of the Old Testament, the heroes of the faith as I've called it. And really all of these heroes, men and women, are ones who connect with God by faith. And it's by faith in that they don't physically see the Lord, but they are following the Lord by faith, just like we follow the Lord in our lifetime by faith. And they follow the Lord all the way to the end, seeking the reward that's in heaven. No one can connect to God unless they connect by faith. That is the connection. That is the lifeline. A lot of people find different ways that they think that they are connecting to God, but they really are not unless they are filled with this heart of faith. And these heroes, these men and women, as we're going to walk through this chapter, should become near and dear to our own hearts as examples, as models of faith. We've walked with uh, them perhaps in Sunday school class teaching and maybe Bible studies or sermons you've heard in the past. But I'm hoping that as we delve deep into the lives of each one of these, that there'll be a nearness, a friendship with these men and women. We're going to look at three, um, Lord willing, three, probably two, and then three the next week, really, um, of the first um, men that were early in Genesis who manifested faith. These are men and women that at the end of Hebrews 11, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. So I'm hoping that as we engage these old friends, that their treasure of faith will be ours as we resonate with their experience. We have to ask ourselves the question, though, and it's an important one. It's the most important question that you can ask yourself this side of eternity, and that is, do I have true and saving faith? Is my faith alive like their faith was alive. That's what Hebrews is all about, is checking that out and spurring each other on in the race of faith. The writer wants to reassure the readers that we do have this faith as we resonate with them. Remember, faith is defined, verse 1, as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's an assurance, it's a substance of heaven in our hearts that we know Jesus is alive. Jesus is real. Heaven is where I'm going. And I live my life in light of Jesus who is alive. He is the object of my faith. He's where I'm resting. Heaven is where I'm going. I talked about last week how in Hebrews 11, there's a cadence that goes on and on between each person where they're seeing something by faith and then they are obeying in light of what they see. They see the revelation of God. They see the promise of God and they follow through and obey. These are the two dynamics that are going back and forth through all of this chapter. Now look at verse six, just skipping ahead again. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without this kind of certainty, without this kind of trust, 
We cannot please God. In other words, we are disconnected from God unless we have this faith. And then verse 6 defines faith with two requisites. There are two dynamics that have to be happening to define faith in your life. One is that you believe God exists. Do you see that? It says, for whoever would draw near to God or specifically know God must believe that God exists. And then secondly, that he rewards those who seek him. Remember the Israelites in the Old Testament drew near to God through ceremonial worship. This was the pinnacle of their experience. The day of atonement once a year and intermittently through sacrifices, they wanted to know that they were right with God. They wanted to know that their sins were forgiven. This is the same for us today. But the Israelites had to go through the priesthood, had to go through a priest, a high priest with a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum. A sacrifice had to be offered, had to be an acceptable sacrifice. And then the priest would reemerge out from behind the Holy of Holies and everybody would breathe a collective sigh of relief. Ha, things are still right between us and the God of Israel, God who is holy. That was the object of their faith. They were believing in this God described through this old covenant system, an old covenant revelation. In the New Testament, we have an object of faith who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, fulfillment of the old covenant, and that's Christ. We believe that Christ exists. Do you believe that Christ exists? You do, don't you? And why? Have you physically seen Christ? We've seen Christ in our hearts, though, haven't we? We've seen Christ through the revelation of Scripture. We've come to faith by what we've heard, and we hear the Scripture, we're believing the Scripture, and we're seeing the living Christ in our hearts. God in Exodus 3 told Moses, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you through the burning bush, right? That's Yahweh in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew. In the New Testament, Christ over and over and over again, specifically in the gospel of John said, I am, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And he's the fulfillment of Exodus 3. We believe that God exists, that Jesus is the I am, that he's the high priest, that he is the living sacrifice, the one who died for us, who lives and makes intercession for us. He's the object of our faith. We either worship the creature or the creator. We're all worshiping something, but we as Christians serve and worship the true and living God. And we have to believe not only in terms of head knowledge, and this is the danger of those in Christian school, Christian institutions, or heavy-duty Bible study. People are sometimes tempted to trust their own intellect, their own head knowledge in God. Well, I can describe God for you. I can give a lecture on who God is. I can tell you all about who God is and what he's about. I can get an A on my theological, theological exam. But saving faith not only worships the true God, the object of our faith, Christ, God in the gospel, but we worship him in a living way. We have believed upon Jesus that he is rewarding us with the sacrifice for our sins. Without that faith exchange, you are not a believer. 
without the understanding that I am receiving by faith, not by my own works, Christ's righteousness. Nothing I could do. It's only what he did for me. The shed blood of Christ is upon me. What a reward, right? He's a rewarder of those who seek him. Jesus said to the woman at the well, you have to be a true worshiper. And God is seeking those who are true worshipers. The Lord is the shepherd calls out and the sheep hear his voice. And we are drawn to him in worship of this God. The reward that's now, the reward that awaits us as an inheritance that's in heaven This is saving faith. This is the faith described in verse 1 and verse 6 as definitions and, and defining markers of true saving faith to say that we know that we are alive like these heroes of the faith. Verse 2, the people of old, they receive their commendation. We too are looking for this commendation through our faith. Verse 3, we believe that God was powerful enough to speak everything into existence as the world was set in motion by him. By faith, we know this is true. And now verses 4, 5, and 7 introduce to us three. We're going to cover two out of the three this morning, but three, watch this word, antediluvian heroes of the faith. You say, antediluvian? What did he just spit out of his mouth? Well, I had to look it up again just to be precise in my definition of it, but these three, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, were all nestled together in a particular time period. And I think we should see this as a little grouping within the heroes of the faith. The first grouping are three pre-patriarchal figures, pre-Abraham figures that are nestled between the fall. There was creation, then there was the fall and the world was injected with sin. And then you have this long time period between the fall and the flood. And so the author starts with those three. You say, why didn't he start with Adam and Eve? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, Adam and Eve, they've walked with, I believe, the Lord Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate pre, uh, state in the garden, walking and talking with the Lord. And so I'm not sure that their faith is the same exactly as Abel's faith, because Abel didn't have the same kind of connection Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden pre-sin. At the same time, Adam and Eve did sin. And so their story isn't one that represents faith. Abel's does. And Abel is this early, early figure in our Bible that is showing to us that it's always been by faith that we receive grace, right? It's always been that way from Abel all the way through. It's being a believer, being a believer. And now we're going to enter into verse four, which begs the question of Cain and Abel's sacrifice and why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not. Look at verse four. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
If you want to, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, because we need to hear the story as written there to understand the commentary in the New Testament. What we have here, and it's an amazing way to study the Old Testament, is to look at, in essence, the point that's being made in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Old Testament was meant to make. And so it's a great way to learn. I used to do it when we would have heavy reading assignments in English class. You could read the cliff notes and then go back and read the story and you could understand it in a greater way. Nobody's laughing because you all did it. Well, most everybody. Okay, all right. Genesis chapter 4, 1 to 11. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now, from this narrative, just reading it by itself, it's not exactly clear why God has regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's offering. It's left in mystery regarding perhaps what was expected of these two brothers and these two sacrifices. You have two brothers, you have The same parents, Cain born first, Abel sometime later. We don't know exactly how much later Abel was uh, born regard to Cain. St. Augustine, though, immediately looks at Cain and Abel like the Bible does in terms of them being figureheads, one of an unrighteous nature and the other of a righteous nature, one of unbelief and the other of belief, one representing leading people astray into falsehood and false religion and the other representing faith and what it means to be righteous and trust Christ or God alone for salvation. The way of Cain and the way of Abel. St. Augustine said Cain was the firstborn and he belonged to the city of men. After him was born Abel who belonged to the city of God. And that's Augustine's famous work is called the city of God. You have two ways. You have two streams. The book of Jude in the New Testament gives more commentary on Cain. says, woe to them, meaning false teachers, people who are leading people astray in the church. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. 
to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Uh, The story of Cain is one of digression. We remember that he killed his brother, but you have, to, you have to kind of read through the commentary where he's interacting with God and God is trying to reach out to Cain and say, if your attitude would just soften, if your heart would just soften and not harden, then this could be stopped. It's a digression in Cain's heart that's documented. By contrast, Jesus in Matthew 23, 35 says of Abel that he's righteous or innocent. And then our verse four, he's commended as righteous, Hebrews eleven four. First John three twelve by contrast says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain, who was of Satan and murdered his brother. Murder at least as far as we can tell from scripture, this is the first account of it in scripture. This could be the first death in scripture. So how did Cain know that he was able to do that to somebody who whispered into Cain's ear, the idea of murder, Satan himself, at least you can infer that from first John who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Satan who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And why did he murder him, 1 John 3, 12? Because of his own deeds, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Two paths. Back to Genesis 4. Actually, if you back up even a little bit earlier than Genesis 4, it gives a context for sacrifice. Genesis 3, 20 and 24. This is after the fall of Adam and Eve. This is God pronouncing, has pronounced the curse upon them. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve, verse 20 of Genesis 3, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned each way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now listen, this is kind of an interesting text leading into the story of Cain and Abel. At first you could say, this is just sad. Adam and Eve, you know, they've sinned. They see their nakedness. They are, they are filled with shame, filled with guilt. Nothing now is right. But do you see right immediately after their sin, there needed to be a death and and something had to be killed. Remember, sin leads to death. And so you needed death to atone for sin. Death for sin was necessary. And so death for sin was immediately established with Adam and Eve. That's where you have the skins. So again, they're covering which is a result of their sin, the need for skin covering, for clothing, was also a mercy in God's grace. 
He didn't immediately have them die. They were condemned to death immediately on that day and they were spiritually dead. God atoned for their sins in mercy with a sacrifice. The blood sacrifice was symbolic and so it had to be attached to the coming one, the sacrificial lamb for that atonement to apply. Even at the beginning with the first man and the first woman, there was mercy. And then in the text, literally Adam and Eve were removed from the garden out of the east side of the garden. And there was a cherubim, verse 24, with a flaming sword turning every way to guard that entrance so that they could not enter back in because within the inner Trinitarian council, you see that word us in verse 22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. In other words, look, he's wise to knowing good and evil. He has sinned and we don't want Adam and Eve to stay forever eternally in this sinful state. We want them to ultimately be rescued because if they ate the tree of life, they would forever be condemned to be in that sin laden position. They were driven out and they were driven out, I think, as a mercy. It was Part of the, it was the result of their sin, but it was also a mercy so that they could ultimately live and die and be brought into heaven, released from sin. A cherubim was a guard, a special angel, a powerful angel, the angel that was symbolized um, in the architecture of the Ark of the Covenant these cherubim angels that were protectors of the presence and the Shekinah glory of God. They were keeping Adam and Eve from the tree of life, Genesis 3, 24, guarding them from a pitifully cursed condition. So the sacrificial offerings began all the way at the beginning of Adam and Eve and their sin. Adam and Eve, I think a lot of times we think of them as um, not as intelligent, being new, thinking in terms of an evolutionary process. Instead of Adam and Eve being put on earth in a sinless state, being highly intelligent from the beginning, naming all of the animals, having intricacy with language and vocabulary, having sons that grasped animal husbandry and farming and tools being made. If you read the Genesis lineage from Adam and Eve, tools and music and instruments were being established. Society was established early on. You have to think in reverse from evolution. This is a, a, a state of, uh, of sophistication early on in the establishment of civilization. And a sacrificial system was in place and in play from the beginning. So when you get to Genesis chapter 4, Verse three, you find that there's a specific time that's demarcated for sacrifice. Do you see that there? Verse three, in the course of time, it says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. The course of time is establishing a specific time period. It it says at the end of time, literally at this demarcated time, Cain was supposed to bring a sacrifice. It was designated for him to do that. Cain and Abel knew uh, out of being also highly intelligent people, they knew what to do. They undoubtedly had heard from God in terms of what was expected. Cain was 129 years old at this time. And so they were undoubtedly practicing sacrifices in light of their parents' first sacrifice from the beginning. 
It's not clear that Cain's offering being the fruit of the ground was the actual sin. It's not directly stated, the fruit of the ground. I'm not sure if the Lord had given a directive for him to slay an animal that he would have done it because of the condition of his heart though. Because Cain's sacrifice that's lacking, the fruit of the ground sacrifice, whatever that was, whatever vegetation or fruit or vegetable of the ground was by contrast, lesser than what Abel offered in the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn offering actually exposed Cain's insufficient sacrifice. And it all comes back to the condition of Cain's heart. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, the fat portions. This was Abel's best. Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. It always comes back to the heart, doesn't it? We live by faith on a heart level. Faith is not something that we can be graded on in terms of a one, two, three, check the box, I've done it. Faith is not external. Faith comes from what's going on inside. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It's what you want to give. And I'm not just talking monetarily. It's what you want to give in worship. We don't come to a worship service to grade the service. We come to worship service chiefly to give an offering of praise, a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. That's the heart disposition of a Christian. That's our heart when we give the gospel. That's our heart when we share our faith or share in Bible study with others. It's to give. This is the heart of faith. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not reluctantly where you're going, oh, I don't want to do it or, oh, I have to do it. Neither one of those for God loves a cheerful giver. It's based on our attitude of joy. Abel gave out of the overflow of what he had and Cain didn't. He didn't. He wouldn't. Abel's worshiping heart with praise is by far contrasted by Cain's heart that was angry. Look at verse 7. Well, we'll look at verse 6. Well, go back to verse 5. Here we go. It says, for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. This is a countenance that falls. Now, this digression is obvious in people who are spiraling. Their face and their expression, their countenance falls. It drops. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, And this is not a harsh confrontation. It's an amazing window into the loving nature of God. And this is how we should be towards others, right? Look how God approaches Cain. This is Cain he's approaching. He says, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, don't read that in terms of performance. Read that in terms of a change of heart. If your attitude is soft, If you do well, will you not be accepted? God's not talking about what kind of offering was given at this point. Cain failed. He didn't give the first fruits in the way that Abel did. It wasn't wasn't his best in action. But really what God is addressing is attitude here. Why is your face fallen? You're crestfallen. You're down. You're hard-hearted. It's obvious. 
But if you repent of this, won't you be accepted? It's Cain that God wants, not the offering. He wants Cain's heart. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. This is the same sentiment, by the way, that Jesus had over Judas Iscariot, right? When he said it would have been better that he not have been born, that was Jesus' heart breaking over a friend and colleague in ministry. Would have been better had he never been born. He's going to hell forever. That's what a hard-hearted condition does. That's where it sends you. This is God's heart breaking for Cain and then warning him that like a lion in the shadows, sin, the personification of sin here, it's as if it's crouching at the door. It's waiting to pounce on you and destroy you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's this evil desire. It's the flesh and your sin. It wants to consume you. And so you must dominate it. Literally, we have to crucify our sin, do we not? We have to mortify our sins. We have to kill it. We have to starve our sins and feed our hearts with truth. If you don't do that, if you don't take action with your attitude and repent of that now, Cain, this is going to eat you up. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and this is a conspiracy. This is literally, some translations say he spoke to his brother about meeting in the field. Are we going to meet up? What's going to happen? Are we going to be there at the same time? He's conspiring to kill him. It's premeditated. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and brother Abel and killed him. Then verse nine, the Lord, just like he confronted Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you in their sin? The Lord in a human-like way is acting like he doesn't know what's going on. He says, where is Abel, your brother? He's exposing Abel's sin. Abel says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord seeing the sin, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Retribution is screaming to me. You, Cain, have digressed. You've, you've spurned my warning. Verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And then it goes on to, to talk about Cain's punishment, which is really a human-like picture of hell. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. This is the the attitude of someone in hell. It's greater than I can bear and there's nothing I can do about it now. As I said, Satan must have whispered this into Cain's heart to be a murderer. There's a famous portrait um, Kent Hughes in his commentary speaks of. It's a, it's a, something I looked up and it shows Cain and Abel. It's a famous painting, painting by William Blake. It depicts the murder in the background. Abel's muscular body is pale and gray and dead. In the foreground is Cain. He's fleeing and his body is moving away as he sprints by, but his torso is twisted back so that he's facing the observer. He's actually looking at the one who's looking at the painting and his eyes are wide in terror and his mouth is gaping in wrenching agony. 
His hands are stopping up his ears in an attempt to shut out the wail of his brother's blood that's screaming from the ground. You know, though Abel is dead, the blood is speaking. In Hebrews 11, 4, it's taken a little bit differently though. Look at, look at how this author writes of Abel still speaking. It says, and through... It's at the end of verse four, his faith, though he died, he still speaks. There's, there's kind of a gospel narrative that's laid on top of this story. It's horrible. Abel's dead. His blood is crying out against Cain. Cain is condemned. But as it's chronicled by the New Testament author, we're supposed to look back at that and say, as horrible as that was, Abel died in faith. And that's how we're supposed to be. His faith testimony, though he's dead, still lives. And it lives in our heart because he's a hero of ours. Scottish theologian James Moffat said, death is never the last word in the life of a righteous man. He's commended. He's commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. It's not insignificant that the first person who's the hero of the faith in this hall of faith is a worshiper. We're called to be those who worship the Lord in spirit and truth. John 4, 23, we're called to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Romans 12, Philippians 3, 3, we worship in the spirit of God. And Hebrews 13, 15, through Jesus, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. Hebrews 11 is not the last place that we'll hear of Abel. Turn over to Hebrews 12, I'll just point this out quickly. Verse 24, it says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, speaking how Jesus is the bridge to God through what? And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, here's a gospel overlay on tragedy. You have Abel's blood that was shed And then you have Christ's blood. Why was Abel's blood shed? Because he was trusting in faith in God. Ultimately, not even knowing that he was trusting in the Messiah who is Christ. Abel's blood is a symbol of faith, trusting in Christ's blood, which is our mediating way into heaven. Isn't that amazing? Your life is a living sacrifice every day to Christ, at work, at home, to your kids, to your spouse, to your friends, your giving, your living, your speech. It's a sacrifice. Whether you live through old age and die or you die somehow for the faith that's cut short, it's for God's glory. It's Abel's life that is our life. And we look to the same sacrifice that was given for us in retrospect, but is applied now and throughout eternity for us as we look to heaven. We have to tie ourselves together to these heroes of the faith. Well, we've got a few minutes. Let's look at Enoch. This is why I knew I couldn't get to Noah. I had no idea how I was going to try to pull off all three. My notes go no farther than Enoch, so don't worry. But they do go to Enoch, so buckle up. All right. 
The blood covers all of our sins. Let's go back to Hebrews 11. Look at verse five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This is another antediluvian figure, a long, a long lived or long lived antediluvian named Enoch. One person said in an English translation, Genesis 5, 21 through 24, devotes only 51 words to describe Enoch. I counted out my English translation. It came a little short. I guess it depends on if you um, write out the, the numbers or not, but it's 50, 50 or 51 words describing Enoch. Enoch is an example of faith. He was 65 years old when his son Methuselah was born. Enoch walked with God. Genesis 5, 22 and 24 for 300 years after Methuselah was born. So at age 365, 365, God literally removed him from the earth so that Enoch never died. Let me, let me read this account in Genesis 5, Genesis 5, 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Kent Hughes said we can think of Enoch's uh, three and a half century long life in this way. It would be like comparing someone who was born in 1627 in our time period, the year that Salem was founded by the pilgrims at Massachusetts Bay. So that's 1627. Span forward to 1992 when, and think of all the historical events that happen in between, all the modernization, all the climbs, all the events, you know, Babe Ruth wins the World Series or whatever, whatever, you know, this is happening, we land on the moon. And then 1992, we have cable TV, right? And Enoch is still around and then he's not, but it's advertised through cable Instant via satellite cable communication, we all find out. That's the span. But then you have Methuselah, who's born when Enoch 65, is 65 in 19, or 1692. If he was born at that time period, he would not die until the 27th century in AD 2661 at the ripe age of 969. These are massive lifespans, massive say why well some people project that you know the water canopy that was surrounding our earth and world pre-flood pre-rain was protecting people on earth from the ultraviolet uv rays and so they live longer sin had not progressed in in the fall in such a way that disease was not as strong as before we don't know i don't know i think it was just part of god's plan to progress and populate the earth that's why there were these lifespans but the lifespan of Enoch is not the point. The point of Hebrews 11.5 is that Enoch did not die. The reward of Enoch's life is he did not have to suffer death. Elijah, think of him. He was swept up in a whirlwind. He would be, you know, later on swept up in a whirlwind. Just looking for the reference there in first. First or second Kings, but then you also have the resurrected Christ, 
who died, but then rose, but then ascended to the right hand of the father, Acts 1, 9. And we as believers, we anticipate what? We anticipate being raptured, the possibility of that. And we who are alive, who are left, are caught up together with him. Wouldn't that be nice? I used to remember as a little child, my mom saying, you know, there is a possibility (laughs) that as believers, you won't have to experience the sting of death because Christ will return and we could all just get swept up with the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? And it would be. I still think that would be a better way to go. But, But the author in Hebrews 11 is stating that Enoch didn't die in five different ways. Look at this. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, I mean, there's five references to him being taken. Okay, we get it. We got it. He did not die. What does that mean for us? The author of Hebrews is not expecting that the early Christians were not gonna face physical death. The point is not that As a New Testament Christian, you're going to miss death. The point is that we are going to experience the same reward that Enoch received when he was swept up. He's walking with God in intimacy, just walking in communion with the Lord for all of these hundreds of years, walking and walking and walking, and he walks right up to heaven, the same place that we're going to be. That's the point. If you walk in faith, you're going to receive heaven. The sting of death is taken, is overtaken by the triumph that we experience by being raised from the dead. Enoch was commended. He pleased God. Some people think he pleased God so much that God just wanted to have fellowship with him directly in heaven in that moment. It was a reward. The emphasis is on reward. It's not that we're going to be spared from death, but it's the reminder that living the Christian life by faith is worth it. Do you believe that Christianity is worth it, that Jesus is worth it? Our hearts deaden at times. We get discouraged at times. We lose our way at times. And we start to think, I don't know if it's all worth it, right? It's worth it. Live by faith. Live like Enoch. What kind of world did Enoch live in? He actually lived in a world that was very difficult. Genesis 6 will lead us into the story of Noah, but the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil continually. 6.11, Genesis 6.11, the earth was corrupt in in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt. It was corrupted all through the earth. So, As Enoch walked with God, he was walking through hostile territory. Jude 1.14 actually tells us what Enoch was doing as he walked. He didn't just walk around and pray and not interact. Jude 1.14 says this, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands, of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly and all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Again, Jude, Jude is condemning false teaching, condemning wickedness and is citing Enoch as a testimony of someone who walked with God, who preached for God and preached judgment So Enoch's life 
Enoch's life still preaches, even under intense persecution. One person said that St. Francis, he was a monk. He called one of his young monks and said, hey, let's go down to the town to preach. The novice delighted at being singled out to be a companion of Francis and quickly obeyed. They passed through the principal streets, turned down many of the byway and byways and alleys, and on their way to the suburbs and at length returned to a winding route to the monastery gate. As they approached it, the younger man reminded Francis of the original intention. intention. says, you have forgotten, Father, that we went down to town to preach. Francis said, my son, we have preached. We were preaching while we were walking. We've been seen by many. Our behavior has been closely watched. It is thus that we have preached our morning sermon. Is it of no use, my son, to walk anywhere? It is of no use, my son, to walk anywhere to preach unless you preach everywhere you walk. So the point is that Enoch did physically preach. He did prophesy, but he lived it. He walked it. Warren Wiersbe said he was transferred to heaven without even an interruption. Do you fear heaven? That might sound odd for me to say. Are you scared of death? Are you scared of the afterlife? We shouldn't be. The point of Hebrews 11 is to walk a life of faith in a world that doesn't understand, a world that will persecute us, a world that loves sin, a world that is corrupted, a world that as in Noah's day was set to be flooded is set to be burned. We walk with God. We live like Abel. We sacrifice to God like Abel did, and we walk with the Lord, right? We walk like Enoch did. We preach with our actions, our attitudes, and our words all the way to heaven. 